is Adventure Rider Radio, and this is Nick Sanders from Wales in Great Britain. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Well, this is Adventure Rider Radio. I'm Jim Martin. And you ever come across somebody in life, you know, that has done so many things, they've got so many accomplishments that you just think, even if I started now at the same pace, I couldn't catch up? Well, you're about to meet just such a man. We got a good one coming up for you. Stay with us. Today we're speaking with Nick Sanders. Nick uh, has more monumental accomplishments in his on his CV than uh, most people could dream of. He held a world record for cycling around the world, and since then he's been around the globe, by, I believe it's nine times, and I think seven of those um, have been on a motorcycle. He's crossed the Sahara Desert by bicycle, ridden the length of the Nile again by bicycle. He's sailed narrow boats from the UK to the Black Sea and back. Uh, Nick has set a record for uh, riding his, his Yamaha Super Tenere from Fairbanks to Ushuaia and back. Uh, he's opened up his own expedition center, I believe it's in Wales, and guides motorcycle trips. He's written several books, um, and it just goes on and on. I could keep going, but we really want to talk with Nick. Nick, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Hello, Jim. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. You know, trying to encapsulate your, your accomplishments into one interview would be impossible. Um, but anyone researching Nick Sanders quickly sees a man with great passion, and, and I believe concentration and drive. And most people out there would be happy with one or two great accomplishments in their life. But you appear to have this never-ending drive, this never-ending desire to go on and, and do something else. And, and it almost appears to me that before you're even finished one, you're moving on to the next. What drives you? Well, that's interesting. You, you, it's a very well-observed point, actually, Jim. Um, I think whilst I'm doing any particular project, I've always um, been working out and working through my mind what to do next. And that's been a trait of everything I've done over the last 33 years. Um, so I think probably it all comes down to the fact that I'm perhaps a little afraid of stopping. Now, uh, or, or what happens when you go back home? I think a lot of riders may feel like this on their one journey or whatever journeys they do. And certainly, certainly clients who come with me on my guided tours, they, they love the idea of going away and going away with me and so forth, but they, they worry about going home. And I say, well, the best way to, to, to not have to worry about going home is plan to go away again. You know, obviously, you've got to fit in family and wives and husbands and things like that. Um, and that's how I advise them to cope with the pain of getting off your bike and putting it away. There's always another journey to do, Jim, and, and, and I extrapolate that for me, and as long as I know I've got another journey to do, um, you know, I'm happy. Nick, I wanted to ask you, um, I, w- I really wanted you to, to, to have a, a giveaway, so if you would just give it all away right here on Adventure Rider Radio, the secrets, your secrets of long-distance riding. Well, so there's two things, I think. I mean, I'm, again, I'm just, you know, shooting, shooting um, from the hip, really. One is smooth riding for example um certainly i ride in a very very economically um you know all my movements are very considered whilst i'm whilst i'm riding i mean this isn't for two or three or four hundred miles um in a day this is for when we're going above and beyond a thousand miles a day 
and some days I have ridden 1,200 and 1,500 miles. Um, and, you know, you're getting to the very limit of your capabilities at that point and the very limit of your energies. So smoothness, considered movements, um, economy of movement, efficiency of movement, really. And in some ways, you know, Jim, that, that applies to the mind as well. You know, I think that um, I don't allow my head to get full of bad thoughts. When you're riding a long distance, you can get into all sorts of trains of thinking, which sometimes is hurtful. Um, you know, you've had a row with a wife and you go out on a bike ride and you're not riding as well as you might. You have to eliminate all that sort of thing. You remember, I'm an ordinary guy in many ways, and I suffer from the same kind of stuff that every kind of ordinary motorcyclist also suffers from. And, um, and, and I think the economy of movement, economy of thought, smoothness, this is a sort of thing. Of course, the other ones, the other attributes that you need are a lot more obvious. Energy, concentration, um, a oneness, feeling good, the way you ride your bike. Um, you have to have peripheral vision um, and, um, and, and, a, and, a, and clear thoughts. Yeah, that's about it, really. You mentioned one time uh, on, a, on a video, I think it was, about you can get by on very little sleep and get up and you can find that you can sleep anywhere. Do you think that's genetics, or is that something you can develop? I'm sure it can be developed. <clears throat> um, I've um, taught myself that over the years. In fact, I discovered it very early on in my career, and I suddenly thought, well, I'll have a, I'll have a little bit of a sleep, a power nap, if you like. And, you know, it worked. I slept for 10 to 15 minutes, and, and then I rode very strongly for the next four to five hours. And I kept doing that. And I suddenly found that basically over a 24-hour period, I was riding my motorbike all the time with just 10 to 15 minute power naps. And that's what allowed me to, you know, um, to do my record breaking rides. And, um, and uh, it's, it's nothing more complex than that, you know. I don't save people's lives, I just ride a bike a long distance and quite quickly and quite safely. That's, that's all it is, really. Is there a preparation that you do um, for the long distance ride? Did you spend a week getting ready? Is there any sort of ritual that you have to go through? I don't do rituals, but I certainly, I'm not particularly superstitious, but I certainly think that it's, it, it's, it's an overall thing. You don't, for me anyway, I don't just suddenly get fit and suddenly prepare. The preparation for a journey starts months and months before, really getting my mindset right. Um, if you like, this is what, I mean, obviously I keep my weight down, and I'm, I'm quite, still quite slim, and I'm, I'm, I'm probably only three or four pounds over my ideal weight. And I'm a 56-year-old man, and you know how it is to keep your weight, how difficult it is to keep your weight off. So, you know, this is important. But I think really, um, like I said earlier, if you prepare, if you're doing, doing a, a particular journey and you're already preparing for the next, and the next journey might well be six months to a year away, you know, in your mind, your mind is already kind of turning over the problems, the issues, the thoughts. It's already analyzing what needs to be done. Um, it's already preparing you for, for who you have to leave behind and what you have to do. So it, it's a mental thing as much as, as much as anything, as much as kind of keeping the weight off, keeping fit and so forth, running every day, that sort of thing. You know, being a, being a kind of an athlete on a bike, I guess, but it's the mental gymnastics that you have to perform in order to do this kind of thing really well. And I don't mean just occasionally. As you know, I do it again and again and again. We all know the dangers of uh, fatigue and long-distance riding, and I understand you have ridden over 400,000 kilometers without an accident. So 
you you clearly have a method that works at least for you what's your safety stops or, or how do you manage fatigue versus safety well i think it's more than it's actually 400,000 miles so that kind of adds a bit more onto wow. it um i think the sa- yeah i think the safety um thing really is um it's not what i would recommend and it's you know it's not what you should you know you should do at home um, sometimes I will very nearly fall asleep when I'm riding. Now, I have never had an accident in, in, uh, in my motoring life, apart from when I was 18, when I had something silly, when somebody hit me. But professionally, nothing. Um, and, you know, no near misses either. So I regard myself as being absolutely, absolutely safe. Um, I mean, you know, the records and the statistics speak, speak for themselves. And and I think almost you really almost have to be a pretty professional bike rider to be able to do this. You know, you can't. Not anybody can do this. This is, this, is, this takes years of kind of training. But I can take myself right to the very limit of tiredness, to the point where I'm almost incapable of riding my bike. And at that point, I can't tell you exactly when that happens, but I know instinctively when if I carry on, you know, I could become a danger to myself. And as becoming a danger to anybody else, that's not the case because the majority of my long-distance riding is in fairly isolated areas, you know. If I know I'm going through a built-up situation, I will ride accordingly. If I'm going across the Atacama Desert or the Trans-Canadian or wherever, you know, where the population density is low, then that's when I put my foot down and maybe I'll get a 1,000 miles in or more, that sort of thing. So hard to pinpoint exactly where that limit is, but it's pretty far out there. So it's a vocation. It's not something you've just decided to run out and do one day, and it's something that you've learned over probably many, many years, um, pushing yourself further and further and, and understanding the craft better and better. It's not something that somebody can just run out and, and start to do. And like you said, you, you're not recommending that. Not at all, no. Now, that would, that would be irresponsible of me. And, and of them, too. There's far more important things than riding a bike a 1,000 miles a day, Jim. Um, um, I think really it's something you build you build up. I mean, the very first thing I did, I rode a motorcycle with an Enfield 500cc bullet around the world. I did 38,000 miles, um, 27 countries. It took seven months. I was ambling around the world. I was learning my craft. I was learning how to put a motorbike on a plane and and get it through customs and you know dangerous goods declaration certification and all that sort of thing you know doing my apprenticeship as an adventurer as a motorcycle adventurer um and then i built it up then the next journey i decided to go and motorcycle around the world fast well around the world in in 31 days on a triumph on a 900 daytona but before i did that I did various kind of medium-distance journeys, London, Paris, London, Munich, London, Stockholm, you know, quite quickly, learning my skill. And then I did um, uh, Tierra del Fuego to, uh, up, to, up to Fairbanks on that one occasion um, to learn how to ride a motorcycle by riding, you know, the longest continuous road, the Panamericana. And only then did I think I was capable of riding around the world in 31 days. And it's an interesting irony, but even having done, even when I started off doing the fastest man journey in 1996, sure, I accomplished it and I, I got the job done. But it wasn't until 2005, which was, you know, nearly, nearly 10 years later, that I really realized, you know, what it was like to be a professional motorcycle adventurer. My journey beyond reason journey is always a concept tour. You know, I think of a concept which I want to accomplish. And the Journey Beyond Reason tour in 2005 was 19 days, 4 hours, and I did 19,000 miles, or just over 
I averaged a thousand miles a day again, but I rode much more comfortably, you know, much more. I mean, obviously, I knocked off 12, 13 days off the record, and no one's gone faster since. Um, so, you know, if you think you're good, think again. You can always be better. Before the Enfield trip, before you, you did your Enfield trip on the Royal Enfield, uh, what got you into long distance riding? What, what made you do that? Does that come from cycling? Yes, very much so. Yeah, I used to be a racing cyclist ever since I was 12, 13, and so forth. Um, I won a lot of national cycling championships as a schoolboy, so I think that gave me the taste, a little taste of success, Jim, you know, um, whereby you um, you get the feeling that um, what you're doing is, is important to somebody other than yourself. You know, you create an audience, um, an appreciative audience, and I worked hard on that all through my teenage years, and I like the feelings of being successful. I know that it sounds as if I'm a terribly, terribly driven man. In some ways, I am in some ways not quite as driven as you might think. I'm not driven in the terms of being ambitious for money um, or, or being incredibly famous. That's not going to happen to me. But I am ambitious in terms of getting the job done properly, professionally, and to, certainly to the best of my ability. And I think, you know, that's all anybody can can do. What's terribly important to me is that people, you know, your audience, will empathize and, and understand what I'm trying to do and relate to it. I don't want to try and be some sort of motorcycle demigod who they can't, they can't even touch. It isn't like that at all. Um, it's, um, it started off very small steps many, many years ago. And then after being a professional racing cyclist and doing pretty good, I then decided to pack all that in and go and bicycle around the world. And um, I bicycled around the world in, a, in a, 138 days. It became a Guinness record. But, you know, just to wind on a little bit further, I bicycled around the world a second time several years later, and I brought the record down to 79 days, averaging 171 miles a day, 300 kilometers a day. And one thing I have learned in my travels that the boundaries that are, exist out there are very much self-imposed. I find that if, when I was riding around the world on a bicycle in 138 days, I thought I couldn't go any faster until I tried. And then, hey-ho, several years later, I knocked off 40 or 50 days. Now, that puts things slightly into context. With many athletes, you hear talk of hitting the wall, so-called. Um, there must be points when you hit the wall, uh, of course, for cycling and absolutely for motorcycling. What's that like for you, and how do you overcome it? Well, the cycling, if, some, if someone says it must be hard to motorcycle around the world, well, it, it, isn't, it isn't really. I know I'm kind of um, killing a few myths here. Um, if you're going around the world fast, yes, that's one thing, but that's very rare, and, you know, the majority of your audience won't do that. They just want to go and motorbike around the world slowly with their girlfriend, wife, or whatever, or vice versa. Or they just want to go on a long bike ride over the weekend, which is, which is, which is fine. But after having cycled around the world, and cycled around the world hard, you know, 171 miles a day, that's when you hit the wall. That's when each day it really hurts and you are so tired you can barely get off the bicycle. Now, once you've had a history like that, and once you've bicycled around the world in 79 days, or bicycled to the source of the White Nile, 
or bicycled across the Sahara Desert, which which I have, or the length of the Americas, which I have. This is a phenomenal history, really. I am aware of that, of course. Then you suddenly find that the simple act of motorcycling around the world is, is not so hard. They're a bit like Briar Rabbit, you know, you throw me into the Briar Patch. Well, if you've been born in the Briar Patch and the Brambles, then it's not so quickly. And I think the reason why I can say this fairly, you know, authoritatively, that motorcycling around the world isn't too hard, um, and I think this is an encouraging comment, this should encourage people to do it, is because I've had such a hard, uh, hard life. And, and it's not just a hard life from a, a physical point of view. It, my life has been quite tough on a number of, number of levels. And I, only by learning how to adapt and, 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 and developing a strategy, if you like, to overcome this toughness, um, have I been able to pro, pro, you know, progress and proceed. Can you tell us about um, some of those difficulties? Well, okay. Um, I mean, I've just written um, volume two of my autobiography. It's called The Extraordinary Life of an Ordinary Man. And it follows on from, obviously, from Volume 1, which came out last year. And Volume 2 is, is going to be um, 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 shown for the first time at the Motorcycle Live um, Motorcycle Show in Birmingham, in, uh, over here in England, next week. Uh, it's the, the two volumes are 370,000 words, and it, it details quite intensely you know, all of the stuff that we're kind of talking about now, which isn't just to do with... Um, it isn't just to do, it's not, you know, as Lance Armstrong said, it's not just about the bike. Um, it's about the mental well-being. It's about the, 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 the things you have to go through. And, and a specific um, for example would be my home life wasn't very happy. We had difficulties at home. Mum had a drink problem and, and stuff like that. And I uh, had to go into hospital on many, many, many occasions. And we had to deal with the aftermath of that. You know, the, the treatment kind of sucked out her soul. She was basically a very good person and a, a lovely lady. But, you know, she was ill. And and as, as a child, as a young child, I had to deal with, with that level of alcohol, alcoholism, which, which, is, which is hard, you know. It's hard when you see your mum, you know, poorly. So... I think really, uh, Dad was preoccupied. I think really, um, one had to uh, find a way to be noticed, and I guess the kind of adventuring and the cycling, and, and also not only just needing to be noticed, one needed um, an escape, geographically, actually escaping and going far away, and I needed to escape and get away from my um, from my my upbringing, not in a horrible way, but in some sort of self survivalist. And again, I'm sure your viewers, your audience, people listening in to this podcast will, oh, many, many will have experienced similar problems and problems which are much greater. And I realize that, you know, I feel that my job isn't just to tell people that I've motorcycled around the world quick. I, I want to tell them that I've motorcycled around the world and, and, I, and I've done it against certain odds. And if I can do it, so can they. It's interesting you took um, adversity, for instance, and instead of um, drawing yourself inward, you sort of struck out and you looked to accomplish things um, in, instead of doing what's, what could be so, I, I don't want to say easy, but it certainly seems to me the natural thing to do when you run into those type of things that make life difficult. You pull back into your shell and, and remove yourselves from the, from the world and Instead, what you have done is actually taking yourself out and thrust yourself into the world. Um, that's got to say something about your personality. Yes, 
when you think about it, I took myself, nevertheless, I took myself after the world that I knew, and and then I moved forward into a new world, which I was keen to discover. Um, the personality, gosh, yes, I suppose so. Um, I think, actually, I found it very easy to travel and to be away from home, and very easy to be an adventurer. One can go through life wondering if you're going to be good at anything. Who knows? Maybe you, you would be a great violinist, but you'll never know that until you try to play. And I think that's what happened with me. I just suddenly, how are you ever going to know you're going to be an adventurer, whatever that means, unless you do? So when I started adventuring and cycling around the world, I didn't do what all the other travelers did. They would go from beach to beach in Thailand and Malaysia and all sorts of places and have a nice time and chill out. I didn't do that. I had a, I had a, a need to, to create a concept, to, to write and, and blog about it, and, um, and, and advertise what I was doing to, to the largest number of people. And, um, and that's all I've been doing. I was the original blogger. I mean, just to get to illustrate this, uh, Jim, in, two, in 1996, when I went around the world on the Triumph Daytona in 31 days, I, my sponsors were Mobile, Oil, Triumph, Motorcycles, and IBM. IBM gave, this was, this was only three or four years after the internet had been um, invented. And we did the very, very first, as far as we're aware, very first around the world blog. And uh, we blogged it as I went around the world, sending messages back, the whole thing, the whole kit and caboodle, everything that everyone does all the time now, we did for the very first time. And we had 50 million people. We were getting, you know, um, 50 to 80,000 hits a day. And we started it all off. This goes back an awful long time. <laughs> That's really neat. So is this blog still online? I don't know. I doubt it. I haven't looked, to be honest. Oh, that's a shame. Um, I, 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 I don't kind of look at anything I've done. Once I've done it, I kind of move on. I don't look at any of my old films. I'm sure I will when I'm old, and it'll be quite amusing, but it's gone. It's done. I think probably not. Um, although, the Fastest Man book I have still, it's, it's, a, it's a cheap paperback, and the Fastest Man Around the World film is a DVD, yep. That's not downloadable, but it's, you know, yeah, it's here. It's here. It's for sale. <laughs> That's really neat. So you started out cycling. You made a transition to motorcycle. Can you tell us about that transition and how that came about? Well, it was very easy. I'd been using motorcycling as a, as a transport, form of transport anyway. Whilst I was a cyclist, it was a cheap way to get around. And I had no interest in motorcycling per se for several years as a youth. I wasn't really interested in the, in the commercial side of it or the racing side. No, it was just transport. Um, however, the one thing that I really did realize was that I was good at it. Um, had I been into it earlier and wanting to race sooner, I think I might have been good. Um, I, uh, I felt a great affinity with the two wheels. Um, my, especially good in traffic. My spatial awareness was really excellent. And that's still one of my... Um, I don't know if you call it a gift, it's a skill, whatever it is, but I can be anywhere. I, you know, I, in India where you have fourth dimensional traffic issues, I'm, I can go through traffic faster than anybody um, and uh, safely, you know, without compromising other traffic users. Um, so I think the, two, the idea of being on a bicycle on two wheels in traffic helped me make that transition. How do you go through traffic so quickly? What's your method? 
Well, it, you've got to have a very good spatial awareness. You've got to know where all your traffic is at all times, not just some of the times. You never, 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 ever not know where you are in relation to the vehicles around you. Um, so I think it's the constant concentration, the, the total focus. It's all to do with never letting go of your position. And also making yourself feel that you are part of the traffic and not just ancillary to it. You know, you're on a motorbike, you're there, you're quite big and beefy. If somebody hits you, they'll know about it, or if you hit them. Um, and, and, of course, pretty lightning reflexes. And as you get older, as we all know, um, your hand-eye coordination can deteriorate. I'm finding that at the moment mine isn't, but you know what you do? You compensate, and as you get older, um, with this vast experience that you've got, you just simply don't get into a situation where you're compromised. And um, I don't know how quite how you explain that, Jim, but um, it's just there, and, uh, and it's just something I have. Yeah, I have a good friend that's um, he's older than I am, um, and uh, he's just finding now that his his night vision is not as good. And so, what he does when he rides is he just rides accordingly. You know, he he understands that that's a limitation for him now, and and just slows it down a little bit um, from that. Very sensible, absolutely. You know, uh, the time is to know when to stop, or at the very least, when to slow down. Yeah, that's a very good point. So yeah, I'm really interested in, in safety as far as talking to you because 400,000 miles without an accident, but 400,000 miles driving the way you drive or riding the way you ride, um, that's not luck because you put yourself in too many diverse situations in too many different countries to be lucky. Luck doesn't run that long or the odds um, can't be with you that long. There, there has to be that style and there has to be an awareness that, I mean, it would be interesting to see a, a book from you. I mean, you, you've written so many books um, it'd be interesting seeing a book from you on on safety on riding technique interesting point jim absolutely i i, I always think there are always better riders than me instructors you know this sort of thing i don't go around thinking i'm the greatest motorcyclist in the world um although um i think that i'm certainly not the best um the most capable motorcyclist in the world i'm sure there are some excellent riders of course there are i think what i have got I think if we go along those lines for a moment, I certainly think overall um, I'm up there with with a handful of the best of them. Simply because um, I publish books, I broadcast, I make films. You know, I self-publish, I I, I edit my films, I I, I present um, my my stories to people, I I ride around the world, I do all this kind of stuff. There's a whole litany of little. Um, abilities and uh, that you need to have in order to make a career out of what you're doing. Um, I guess anybody can motorbike around the world, but the next step is to write about it. And nothing to write about it, to create an audience who wants to read about it. And then not only that, you've got to create an audience that wants to read about it and then wants to read about it again. And this is, this is a long burn thing over 33 years. You are writing in your own style, you are appearing you know, as your own avatar or your own style of person, your own persona. But you have to adapt a little bit to the people that you're working with, your audience. You know, you have to make sure what is it that makes them laugh, smile, think. And I have, I've listened, I've watched, I've looked at the feedback, I've analyzed the results, so to speak. So without compromising what I really want to say, I just want to make sure that what I have to say is meaningful 
for the people who um, have taken the time to listen. Malcolm Gladwell, uh, who writes for, the, I believe it's the New York Times, wrote a book about outliers. And one of the things he wrote about was the uh, the 10,000 hours that um, research has shown that once you get 10,000 hours in, you become a real expert. And do you think that's part of it as well? I mean, you clearly have well beyond your 10,000 hours and that makes you an expert in your field. And of course, that puts you in a position um, where you do have things to teach. I think the 10,000 hour thing which Gladwell talks about is quite interesting. And I was talking about this only the other day. I think that um, that's, that's probably true. Um, I think also what's true is that um, um, I think there's a law of diminishing returns with your cap- how, how more and more capable and more and more expert you become when you go beyond the 10,000 hours. Now, let's say I put in, I don't know, got to be 100,000 hours. So, But that doesn't mean I'm 10 times more expert than someone who's, who's done 10,000 hours, Jim. I think that law of diminishing returns kicks in that the more that you do, the more and more that you do, we're talking about super expert now, then the less you're going to get back ultimately. Of course, you're going to improve. There's no doubt about it. Um, but let me illustrate this in, in, in one simple way. I have motorcycled around the world seven times. I've bicycled around the world twice, but I've, I've motorbiked around the world seven times. And on two of those journeys, Jim, I can't remember very well. It's almost as if I haven't done them. Now, I can't, I can't know why that is. Um, there's a flaw in my in my memory bank at that particular point in my life. Maybe there's a, a period in my life where I wasn't receptive to what I was doing. Maybe my hard drive in my head is just full up. And you sometimes have to kick a few bits and bobs out so that you can re-energize yourself with new material. Um, so this is the problem as you go into the 100,000 hours. You have to kick a bit out um, and, and lose a little bit. And I'm sure that has happened. Nevertheless, what you're saying is, I'm sure, true. I think, ultimately, the more you do, the better you are at what you do. And don't you find that um, after you get into something, I mean, I often say to people, when, you, you know, when you're getting into whatever it is new, if it's motorcycle riding, you finally get to the point where you say, wow, I'm just starting to get the hang of this, and I just realize how little I know about it. In my mind, that's when you're starting to get an understanding of what's going on. And beyond those 10,000 hours, I think that just the idea of, of talking the philosophy, and you've sort of, you've got the, um, the basics down pat. You no longer have to think about them. It's like when you learn to drive a vehicle you start off having trouble just keeping the vehicle going down the road but after a while you're drinking coffee you're talking on the phone all these things we shouldn't be doing and it's no problem because the basics are down pat and I think with someone like yourself you have those basics down so pat that now you're free to look at all those esoteric possibly things of, of motorcycling um, but all the finer aspects and analyze those from a, from a view that most people would not be able to even uh, think of to begin with. These are very pertinent questions, Jim. I applaud you. Um, I think um, when I was cycling around the world, I would um, have this endomorphin rush whereby at the end of the day I'd feel quite good. Put it this way, for about 150 miles, um, it, 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 it was okay. You know, you're on some sort of steady state, sort of physiological mechanism. Between 150 and 160 miles, 165 miles, you're kind of feeling you're kind of feeling very euphoric. The endomorphins have seriously kicked in because you're at such a level of of physi- physiology and um, and stress, if you like, um, 
there's a chemical hormone there telling you that you know you shouldn't be going anymore because this could become harmful. Um, it could stress the muscles and the tendons and so forth. Um, but you know you want to, so we're going to make you feel better as you do. Now you don't have, of course, at the end of the day, you're thoroughly tired and you're not capable of any kind of any kind of philosophical reasoning. That's that's the, that's cycling for you. You see, I, I guess I'm the only person, if you think about it, in the world who can compare the two. Now, with motorcycling, you don't have the same physiological issues. You're sitting on your bike all day and the bike's carrying you. You're certainly not cycling. It's not got the same energy issues. So really, by the end of a long day, you're still feeling quite fresh. Certainly after 500 miles, I'm easy peasy. A thousand miles, it's still tiring. But I'm capable at the end of the day to look back at what I've just done and analyze and quantify it in some level. As, of course, are many motorcyclists. Remember, we're all out there. We're in the middle of our own, our own road trip. We're, we're not just watching it. This is not a road movie we're watching. We are creating it, as you as you are well aware. And they are all capable of making some some comments, some you know, some thought process, analysing it, what it was to see those beautiful things and listen to those birds and all the rest of it. But I have taken it to level now. Now, having done a hundred thousand hours on a motorbike, I've also done the same as a writer. And I'm trying, and the next level for me is to try and explain, and if you like, philosophical, use whatever some of my philosophical training, if you like, um, to kind of join these things together to write about a motorcycle journey in the way that Persig wrote about it in Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, his inquiry into into um, into values um, hasn't been repeated um, often. Um, the two talents just haven't come together um, for quite a long time. Um, Ted Simon wrote his Jupiter's Travels, and I know Ted Simon really well. And Ted's a nice guy, but 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 Ted didn't 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 push himself to that degree. He was much a much more of a pedestrian motorcyclist and a, and a and a good rider and a very good writer. But he's a writer on the lines of being a journalist. I was in Goa with him in in India earlier this year, and we discussed this. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't, you know, um, have any kind of philosophical reasoning in his literature because he didn't feel that was his style. Now, my problem is to try and put philosophical reasoning into my writing. And I have to ask myself, am I intellectually capable of doing that? It's an ongoing, it's an ongoing task, Jim. Um, but some of this is absolutely woven into the last two volumes. Nothing before these last two volumes would I recommend anybody buying or reading necessarily. Although I did a book going to Timbuktu, and that was pretty good. But the last two volumes are absolutely, um, you know, pretty pretty okay. They're getting there, starting. <laughs> You, you know, uh, many people who travel by motorcycle will say, oh, the motorcycle is just a form, a mode of transportation. They enjoy the mode of transportation to uh, get them where they're going, and, it, and it's a great way to do it. But you're at such a level where you're you're actually going quickly, so really it's not so much about the areas that you're going through. It's about you and the bike. And that's where, you know, Zen and the art of motorcycling, really, that, that sort of thought process, um, that's where that comes from, doesn't it? That, that intimate, that visceral connection between you and your machine, and it becomes something more than just a, a man on a motorcycle. Yes, I've never thought of myself just as a man on a motorcycle. That is true. Um, um, I think um, think of it like speed reading. People who speed read 
claim and have been proven to to be able to um, um, mem- memorize and, and are aware of everything they've read just as as, as well as efficiently as someone who who, who reads in a more, in more slowly. I, I think it's the same with motorcycling fast. If you can motorcycle fast and efficiently, you can still look around. You just take everything in faster. You know, you absorb everything quicker. And um, and and you're expert at, at deciphering what you think is is, is worth absorbing and, and seeing, um, and um, whilst you're quickly glancing either side of your handlebars and so forth, you know, you you get a quicker understanding of where you are. It's back to that spatial awareness. It's not just about looking around spatially. It's like looking around mentally, spatially, at the same time, sucking it all in, and then. Going back home and writing it down. You're tired. You don't feel like doing it. You really want to do something else, but you record it. And then I will spend several hours recording my thoughts, making my own podcast, um, editing my own film, doing it while it's fresh. And uh, and, I, and I've noticed um, the notes that I've kept over the years and uh, have been invaluable in terms of me being able to um, extrapolate from those notes. Um, things that I'm now more capable of examining, which perhaps I wouldn't have been capable of then. We've talked on this show before about keeping notes and the value of recording any sort of journey you do. And I can certainly understand that. I know that when you go back in your journal and you look at the things you've written, uh, it brings back that very day, the memory, the, the, the entire incident that you're writing about. I quite agree. Um, so that's a, that's a big lesson, isn't it, Jim, really? Make notes. And for all the young people out there, really, who might be uh, listening to this and wanting to, to emulate it in some ways, these are important life lessons, motorcycle life lessons, if you like. It, 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 like We must keep on reminding them that it's not always about the bike. And traveling fast, you mentioned there about traveling fast, you learn to look at things. And, and for those who might balk at that, uh, the, the fact that maybe you could see things traveling quicker, you'd only have to look at the history of, of motorcycles or the history of automobiles. When automobiles were first around or motorcycles were first invented, they moved very slow. If you were to take someone who rode a motorcycle in that day and bring them to today and just run them down the average freeway, it would be terrifying. It would be confusing. It would be something they couldn't even handle handle uh, to, to um, understand what's coming up and, and compute all the things you need to do on a motorcycle. So this is something that, this is just, um, like you said earlier, uh, finding your limit and then sort of pushing it beyond that. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and, and I think also that limit on any particular journey is then magnified and, um, and, um, and replicated again and again and again. You know, after 33 years and God knows how many journeys I've done, you suddenly realise you've done so. You've done so much. This, you know, it was never a plan to be so prolific at all. I really had planned to go around the world on a bicycle or something or a motorbike, and then kind of quit and um, move into something else, find somewhere where I could transfer what skills I'd learned. Um, but then to go and do it again and so many more times um, has rather taken me by surprise, to be perfectly honest. I'm still um, keen to do it. But, you know, sometimes one wonders whether going around the world on the motorbike is what I need to do. I've kind of done it. Um, so that, that's may, that maybe is what 
what what my next project isn't going to be. It, it could be something um, um, a lot a lot shorter, um, something more akin to creating something slower. Kind of going full circle here. Um, I was planning to go to to Botswana for January, but. My sponsors have been a bit slow in in kind of um, sorting out a new, a, new, a new agreement with me. Um, that that's going to be happening, and we're signing a new contract. Um, you know, next week we think for three years, Yamaha Europe will be supporting me along with a few other companies. But um, we may push that back to March. But the idea would be go to Africa, to go to Botswana, and Namibia, and just do those two countries. Maybe a bit of South Africa. Normally, I would go all over Africa, um, everywhere. You know, straight up to to Vinoy and Namibia and north of there and Zambia and Uganda and back down again. But you kind of got to kind of compress so much into such a short amount of time. I wonder if by slowing down, observing, sitting beside your bike, sitting on the side of the the, um, the Kalahari Desert and just thinking. I'm curious to know what will happen then, Jim. Well, that'll be very interesting to to hear the results of that. I want to ask you about um, what you're doing now as far as your trips, etc. But first, let me just ask you quickly about the R1. And for years you rode that. Can you tell me about the choice for the R1 and, and your reasoning behind it? Well, I didn't think it would um, do for my career what it clearly has done. I had no idea that it would be so um, uh, reactionary, if you like, um, I liked the R1 because I was a racing cyclist, and so I, I appreciated and fitted um, the shape of the bike very well. So my kind of lying over the tank with almost drop handlebars was something that was very easy for me. Um, I didn't have a back problem, wrist problem, nothing at all, knees, nothing, everything was fine. Uh, I felt very good at it. Um, what it did was it gave me, it gave everybody else the view that, I was doing something a little bit harder than perhaps that was necessary. One assumes that by going around the world on some BMW GS, for example, one big Super Tourer, Super Tenere, anything like that, makes going around the world a bit easier than going around the world on an R1. Now, in a sense, that's true, I think. Having done both, I'm, I, I'm, I'm equipped to say that riding a Super Tenere is a comfortable experience and therefore you can stay on it for longer. However, at the time, I was extremely comfortable on the R1. I saw the, uh, I saw the view that I was racing around the world anyway, um, so therefore it suited me. Um, it didn't feel uncomfortable. Um, I felt very much at one with it. And the benefits of that was that, you know, you take an R1 across the Nubian Desert in northern Sudan, and you're going through six inches of not so much sand. It is sand, but it's more like loam. It's finer than sand. It's almost dust. And you eventually, you're, you know, you, you know, your tires will hit a clay base underneath this surface of sand, sandy dust. And you're just sweeping through. You're paddling through this area at about nine miles an hour in 50 degrees centigrade temperatures for several days alone. And you're thinking, well. You know why not an R1? It makes it makes a fascinating viewing, Jim. I mean, I've got clips on my website, nicksanders.com, the YouTube clips, which anybody can just click into, and you'll see exactly what I mean. It, maybe it would have been easier on an XT660 or something like that. You're probably right, but it gave me a lot of extra credence 
and added to my credentials as a young record breaker, a younger record breaker. So it, it, it did a lot of good for me, actually. And now you've switched to the Super Tenere, um, which you ride. Of course, you're sponsored by Yamaha. Uh, tell us about the Super Tenere. Well, it's a good bike. It's not. Um, it was never my first bike of choice. The R1 was. And it was a commercial decision to move me across from the R1 to the Super Tenere. And I was reluctant at first because adventure bikes, ironically, are not my first choice of machine. Um, but that's only because I didn't know any better. I moved over to it. And then I found that I actually quite like riding it. It was a, a different view. You know, you, you're sitting more upright. You get a different, literally a different view of the countryside as you're passing. And I quite like that. It was more comfortable. The interesting thing that I liked about it was it had carrying capacity. I mean, I've got Duratech panniers and stuff. And I could put my camera, my movie camera, into there and bits and bobs and my clothes and reading material and so on. So the fact that I could just open the lid, pull out the camera and start making a movie, it was very good. With an R1, you've got to carry it on your back. There's no carrying capabilities on an R1, as you're aware. Um, and, you know, even if you, you have saddlebags and so forth, soft luggage on an R1. Otherwise, you know, it doesn't look right. You've got to look the part. This is, this is part of the whole process of racing around the world. You've got to look at if you're a racer in one-piece leathers and you are doing the job properly. Um, so when I moved over to the Super Tenere, I had this, um, this, this ex, these extra capabilities, you see. Um, I could make a film faster. I could get my camera out quicker. Um, and, uh, and apart from that, the, the technological capabilities of the bike are really very good. Um, uh, underestimated, unknown in some ways. Goes around corners excellently. It's very it's heavy enough to, be, to feel very planted on the ground. You don't feel any slippage. Um, it's the direct... Um, it's reliable. This is a big thing about me and Yamaha. Um, and there are other manufacturers that are also reliable, but Yamaha absolutely has reliability stamped all over its engine. It is superb. I have never, ever broken down on any of my bikes. And the, the, the Tenere, Super Tenere, which I rode the length of the Americas, I rode actually from, um, from Ushuaia all the way up to, um, to Las Vegas with clients, and the clients went home, and I carried on from Las Vegas straight up to Prudhoe Bay. And, um, and then the next day, I left Prudhoe Bay, and I rode my Super 10 all the way down, all the way back down to Ushuaia again. And then when I got to Ushuaia, I turned around, and I went all the way back up to Prudhoe Bay again. Oh, wow. <laughs> I did it three times nonstop. <laughs> The bike didn't break down once, but we not we we put in forty six thousand miles in in just over two and a half months. That's incredible. Um, looking at what the average mileage is for the average rider, and, and uh, you know that would take many years for them to to cover that distance. I, I'm stunned by your comment that you've never had a breakdown. I, I mean, obviously you've had flat tires and and chain maybe or or whatever, but never had a major breakdown. No, um, and it, again we talked about luck earlier, Jim about, you know, not getting hit by traffic and so forth. I actually believe it's how you ride a bike to some degree because all bikes are capable of breaking down, as we know. And also, all tyres are capable of, of puncturing. Now, I... Um, OK, I use Continental tyres, for sure. Um, and in all my... I, I've never used anything else. In all my 400,000 miles, you know, you may find this hard to believe, but I've only had one puncture. <laughs> now, a little bit is luck. You can ride over the nail, fair enough, and no tyre will, will be able to cope with that. But 
when I'm riding a, a, on my road, I am looking and I'm seeing stones and whatever, um, and that might, you know, compromise the tire pattern. And, and also, tire wear is an issue for me because if I'm riding um, far away, I'm not. I, sometimes I carry tires, obviously, but I want to ride my tires to to within an inch of its life. So towards the end of their their tire, their normal tire wear, it goes into abnormal tire wear, and that's when you're very vulnerable to puncturing. But I never did. I, I rode my tires around the, the, the stones. I rode my tires around the potholes and didn't buckle the wheels. I rode my bike again efficiently and uh, economically and, and gently. I still ride very fast, but I get up to speed in, a, in an appropriate way, so I don't stress the bike any more than I need to. And I think my style of riding, which has now come very naturally, and as we've discussed, this goes beyond the 10,000 hours. You ride it that it's part of your own body almost. Um, I, I guess I've, I've contributed to the reliability of the Yamaha model, you know. Um, if, it, if I'd ridden it in maybe some in, in a more destructive manner, it too would have broken down, yeah. That's ironic that the guy who's ridden over 400,000 miles all around the world and done all the trips you've done can't tell us anything about fixing flat tires. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, Jim, you're quite right. I plug them for sure. Sure, I can just about do that. But... I, I don't take too many tools with me. I'm not um, an engineer or a mechanic. I'm an artist and a thinker, and I think that's about as, as far as I can go. And uh, therefore, I chose a mark like Yamaha, who, I, who are known for their reliability, and um, for very good reasons, very good personal reasons. Finding adventure seems to be something that is is um, is somewhat difficult to nail down, maybe impossible to nail down. And I would ask you, how do you define adventure? Is adversity required, and is time required? Well, Jim, if I could, if I if I created this, or, or we we both discussed the the ingredients or the recipe for, or or the you know what an adventure means, we're gonna. We're going to exclude a lot of people who do different kinds of adventure. Um, Aldous Huxley went around his back garden, and admittedly, I think he was on on mescaline or something, but he walked around his back garden, and he described the folds of his trousers and his shoelaces and uh, the flowers and the the flora in his garden to such a degree that he wrote Heaven and Hell, Doors of Perception, and it was one of the most riveting adventure books I think I've ever read. It was a journey around his back garden in a way that I only wish I could do. Um, um, Now, most people wouldn't see that as part within the genre of of adventure, Um, but I do. Um, you know, T.S. Chifley uh, rode a, a horse from Buenos Aires in the 1870s um, to to Washington. And, um, you know, people who aren't into horse riding, you know, may not give that much credence. Um, um, I don't think it's to do with um, where you go. I think it's to do how you think about where you are as you do it. Um, I think it's much more, for me anyway, a mind thing. I think it's a difficult one. Let me just try and illustrate how I felt as a five-year-old. I always wanted to astral travel. Now, this is um, a difficult one, you know, whereby you lie in your bed and you close your eyes and you lie in a particular way 
and it hasn't hasn't happened to me and then you leave you have an out of body experience and suddenly you're flying and you're dreaming and um the the song lines of aboriginals you know, the dream lines these people um will will travel like this they will know where places are without having had you know physically um transported their body to them um people in borneo papua new guinea and so forth you know ordinary people will, will visit relatives on the other side of the world and claim that this is absolutely normal to them. Now, that can neither be proved nor disproved, um, and, and why, should we, why should we want to? But if I could just lie in my bed and close my eyes and, 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 and transport my, my mind to a, another part of the world, I would say that was an adventure that I would um, give everything up for. So there's my definition of adventure and how I would like to proceed in the next 200,000 hours, Jim. <laughs> Well done. Nick, when you go to your website, which is nicksanders.com, and of course we'll put a link in the show notes, um, you see there's a lot of things going on here, and it, it's certainly, um, I think it's a good representation of your life. It's very busy, and you have a lot of things happening. Can you tell us about, uh, maybe just start with your adventures that you have planned? Well, I've been um, concentrating on North America for, for a few years now. Um, I've done a lot of hard journeys. I've, ta- I've taken clients on, um, on trips to Timbuktu three times, the length of the Americas three times. You know, we run probably the toughest trips um, on the planet. Uh, but that doesn't mean to say they're super, super, super tough. They're, 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 they're not really. They're very well guided. We do proper risk assessments, health and safety. I have a doctor on the trip and support drivers, which are just brilliant. And you get my attention, you know, 100%. Um, and um, so, yes, we've done all the big hard trips. I was the first person to take clients around the world in 2002. I took 22 people around the world. Uh, we did 27 countries, 36,000 miles, five continents in 96 days. So we've done everything that you one can um, possibly do. Um, so, but presently, uh, I've concentrated in the USA, coast to coast to coast, New York to San Fran, down to Los. Las Vegas and back to New York. Um, I'm doing another coast to coast this coming June, which is from Key West and the Florida Keys all the way up to Prudhoe Bay and back down again. Um, the, wor- the world is closing down a little bit at the moment with the various terrorist activities and so forth. So, I mean, you can't easily do London, Cape Town, for example. So you have to kind of watch where you're going and be aware of the political situation. North America is a great playground, and and I and I say that really in the nicest possible way. Um, I mean, of course, there are always issues about every country and, and so on and so forth, but we see it in a very nice way, in a very optimistic way, a very positive way. We love coming to North America. We we love the openness of people. We love, you know, the fact that we're going to be riding from Key West all the way through the USA and then into Canada, British Columbia. I know British Columbia really well. And then in the Alcan and up to the Richardson Highway and the Dalton and so forth through the Yukon. And um, you only live once. And we only have one, one planet, I guess. And, um, you know, we intend to enjoy it. And I think people who come on my trips, for example, Jim, they get that kind of feeling too, that kind of, that kind of optimistic buzz. I can imagine that. I even see that um, with the the amount of bookings you have already for these trips. That obviously it's a it's a very popular thing. Tell us a bit about the expedition centre you have started. This is in Wales. Um, it's um, it's a purpose built expedition centre, brand new with cabins and um, and tents and so forth. 
Um, the expedition centre itself is on, on on three levels, which includes a 32-seat um, um, cinema where we can do presentations, show films, and so forth. Um, we have a table in the main area, which has got seating for 18 people, and um, and a professionally set up kitchen. <clears throat> the whole thing is run by. Certainly, the kitchen side is run by Dr. Taylor, my partner, and she cooks gourmet food, and um, and and I kind of. Um, give a discourse at the table and we have Q&As and we, we, we ask each other questions and just get involved um, with each other's adventures, if you like. Um, the whole place is in, a, is in a country setting in Wales, mid-Wales, and um, quite isolated um, with a stream running through my, my land, nine acres, and, and a private track to get, to get here. Um, and so you get the feeling that to get here in itself is, is, is an adventure. And then when you come here, you're absolutely infused with adventure and positive adventure. And like we've discussed earlier, talking through the idea that you don't have to, it's nothing to do with how far you go to adventure. It's taking that first step. And if you're not quite sure about, you know, what it all means, we're here to help. We're here to kind of say, yes, you can do it. And, and, and you can do it within these kind of parameters, which you know, effectively make it safe. You know, we, we help somebody who's a little bit nervous about going off on their first adventure and making not only him or her feel good about that first step, but making their partners feel confident that they're going to go either away with me or by themselves, and then they're going to come back safely and come back, you know, with a spring in their step. That's what it's all about. You have various things for sale on your website, and certainly people ought to go over and, and pick up the uh, the two books about your your life story. The first book being the extraordinary life of an ordinary man, uh, Nick Sanders, and then the second one, extraordinary life of an ordinary man, volume two. Definitely something that uh, everyone ought to run over and grab. Thank you for that. But may I suggest that people in North America, for example, and get the downloads. It saves on postage. The downloads are about four or five dollars. Get the uh, autobiography volumes. Um, on Amazon, just go into Nick Sanders books and uh, you'll find them all and you'll download it straight away. Well, thank you very much. The, I've been speaking with Nick Sanders and um, I really appreciate you taking the time, Nick. Yeah, Jim, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Pleasure. Well, that was a really enjoyable hour. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. And that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. I'm Jim Martin. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. Hey, wait. Before you go, you want to do Adventure Rider Radio a favor? Head on over to iTunes and give us a rating there. Or drop by our website and click on our comment or our feedback button. Or like us on Facebook. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at ADV Rider Radio. The other thing you can do, if you enjoy the show and you think we've been doing a good job, you want to donate something, head over to the website and click on the donate button. There's a bunch of choices there. You can choose what you want to give, and we'd really appreciate it. Hi, I'm Jason Spafford. And I'm Lisa Morris. And we are Two Wheeled Nomad, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Woohoo!
Hello there. My name is Austin Vince, and I'm on Adventure Rider Radio. If you're listening to this, you rule me. in Wales in Great Britain and it's been a pleasure talking to Adventure Rider Radio. What a great pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>